G'day, I'm Rowan Mackey, and I'm joined by my dad, clinical psychologist Chris Mackey, and this is Psych Spiels and Silver Linings. G'day, Dad. How you going today? Good, thanks, Rowan. I know you've been looking forward to this topic that you've been working up to for a while. Oh, I've been chomping out the bit, Dad, but uh, we're finally here, and we've called today's episode Metanoia, a model of breakdown and growth. So, Dad, I'm super excited to be talking about what we're talking about today, but do you want to just give us a, a bit of a broad overview? What are we going to be talking about? Okay, now I'm going to let you talk about metanoia and what it means with different examples, but because it partly relates to this idea of a breakdown, I'm just going to mention that often in the past, especially you go back 20, 30 years or more, if people had gone through a severe depression and maybe been hospitalised for it or been unable to function very well for a couple of months, people would often say, I've had a breakdown. Or sometimes clients would be concerned, oh, have I had a nervous breakdown or am I going to have a nervous breakdown, this kind of thing. It was a common term that was used. I don't hear it as much these days, although you sometimes hear it. But it sounded as though people were like a broken down car or like they've had their leg broken. It's like their mind has been broken in some way. It often had this really negative connotation to it. And it added to a feeling of helplessness and passivity and maybe someone not being right in their head, this kind of thing. So I like the idea that we're going to reflect on a topic that looks at different ways of thinking about the notion of breakdown and what it means or this feeling of it coming apart. Well, it is an interesting one, Dad, and like, I just find this so interesting. And like, as you say, I think that notion of a, a breakdown had like developed in psychology. But when I was looking into some of this sort of stuff, like, it almost surprised me in some ways that that had been the case because like, this idea of metanoia that we're going to be talking about today, I don't want to get too far into it now, but it's something that comes up across you know thousands of years of philosophy, like places that wouldn't have had any connection to each other thousands of years ago, but they all draw upon these similar ideas. And like, as you say, like, I think when we do look into this stuff, that it really does help to reframe something from being just a purely negative thing that we've been through to an opportunity for growth, as you say. Yes. And the thing that interests me is this happens in all living systems. For example, if we look at a political system or a traffic system, something has to fall apart often for something new to come in its place. Like, say, for democracy to develop, then the rule of kings had to break down in a certain way. If we look at a traffic system, if we're going to develop great ideas like a ring road or something like that or tunnels that work in a certain way. It's because the original patterns are breaking down so it needs something else more creative to come in its place. But I think fundamentally it also relates to the core basis of life and cell division. Like just say to get cell growth or for an organism to grow and become more complex, what happens? You start off with these cells that start to almost look like they're dissolving and then coming apart and they look all ugly and terrible as the cells dividing. But then what do you end up with? You end up with two cells where there was one before and then four cells and then so on it grows exponentially and you get a much more complex organism. But at the stage when things are coming apart, so say a microscopic slide of a cell dividing, it looks all ugly and messy and no good will come out of this. 
but that's a necessary process for something more complex, more evolved to arise. So I think that's why this is such a fundamental concept. It relates to all living systems. There has to be a coming apart at times for a new level of growth. And that's not necessarily something that's, I suppose, intuitive. And I may have answered my question there from before in terms of how we maybe develop this idea about a breakdown being a negative thing. Like it's not intuitive, this sort of stuff. And and that's where it's, it is really going to be good to look into some of this stuff with you today. But Dad, before we get too far into it, I want to have a slightly longer run up for today's episode because in some ways these are slightly complex ideas. So I suppose before we get too far into it, there's something I want to talk to you about in terms of our belief structure, like the nature of our belief structure. And I know that there's a concept in psychology called schemas, and I think it's going to be really helpful to understand a little bit about schemas before we get too far into what we're talking about today. So, so I wonder if you could just tell us a little bit about what a schema is in psychology. Now, schemas are underlying beliefs, very fundamental beliefs that can shape people's thoughts and feelings and behaviour. And they tend to be influenced by early experience, but in ways that might be unhelpful. So in psychology, we often focus on the more what we call maladaptive schemas that don't help so much. So one example would be, people will inevitably abandon me. Well, just say someone was abandoned by their parents soon after childbirth. And they were maybe raised by a relative and then they were abandoned there or they went into an orphanage or foster care and they might have been abused there or something like that or otherwise abandoned in some other way. They might learn that people are not trustworthy. I'm unlovable. People will abandon me or otherwise people might get the idea that, oh, look, if I've been abandoned, it's because I haven't measured up as much as I should have to that person's expectations. So maybe it then becomes... I must be perfect to be worthy. I must have people's approval all the time and do just what they want. Or otherwise, if people have been in situations where they've been overwhelmed, even understandably through early life experience, they might think, I'm inadequate. Or they might think, I depend on others to survive because they might have been in situations where they were so much relying on other people's approval and support to get by. So our early life experiences will tend to shape different beliefs, but also our beliefs can be somewhat idiosyncratic as well. So in the same situation, we won't necessarily develop quite the same beliefs. Some people will vary in their beliefs about how much they need other people's approval or how much other people will be trustworthy or how much we need to be perfect. But by the same token, our beliefs do tend to be influenced by past experiences. And once we hold those beliefs rigidly, I must be perfect. I must have other people's approval. I must succeed at things I do. I can't tolerate uncomfortable feelings. That will tend to shape our experience afterwards. So these become more entrenched or stuck beliefs, if you like, especially if they're reinforced by early child experience and subsequent habits and other unfortunate circumstances. And a lot of psychology with people who have the longer term, more severe long-term personality difficulties is getting at some of these underlying beliefs that might have been influenced by past experience, but they're no longer functional or helpful or adaptive. So the person can learn they don't have to be perfect or always rely on other people in a certain way or have other people's approval to function well. And 
It's very important that people can come to have experiences that back up new beliefs and challenge old beliefs. You can't just in your mind think, I'm going to suddenly think this differently. It's a deeper, more fundamental level. So that deeper change in our attitudes and beliefs involves a shift in feelings and behaviour as well. You can't just get to it by a simple shift in thinking or a mental trick. And the thing that strikes me about those like deeper beliefs in a way is that they're kind of inaccessible in a way. Like for example, like the way that I think about it is like we've got say layers to our like system of beliefs. Like if we turn on a light switch, you know, we, we flick the light switch and we develop a belief that when I flick this switch, the light will turn on. And then I might go over to the television, I might turn the TV on. And then so I might develop a belief that when I, you know, press this button, the TV turns on. But it's almost like you can amalgamate those two beliefs together and form a belief around, like, for example, like electricity can be used to power our devices at home. But then, you know, I might look over at the stove, which is run off gas. And that's also a device, but it's powered by gas instead of electricity. So I can almost then develop, say, like a deeper belief from then on to go, well, Energy, whether it be gas or electricity or you know, other forms of energy, can provide our devices. But it's almost like to kind of contribute to that belief about energy providing our devices, like there's no energy device. Like I have to find electricity and gas and almost amalgamate them together. And then with the belief that electricity exists and can power our devices, it's almost like I've got to go and seek out you know, smaller micro versions of electrical products that can turn on. And it's like, I can develop my belief over time. So like, is that correct in terms like the way that I see it? It's almost like you've got, say, like a a micro level of, you know, you're going around doing your everyday activities and sort of developing beliefs around that. But then beyond that, they're almost contributing to something which is contributing to something which is contributing to something. And at the end of it, you get these real kind of fundamental deeper beliefs about who you are and and what makes life worth living and, and all these sorts of things. Yes, so one of the things that strikes me about that is it's natural for human beings and it's helpful for our psychology to try and simplify life in some ways. So we make these generalisations and there are times when it can be very helpful, for example, to believe that, well, people aren't trustworthy or I need to depend on others to succeed in certain ways, or it makes a hell of a difference if I look to achieve rather than not achieve. Actually, if we go back in terms of tribal life 10,000 years ago, if we didn't get people's approval, we'd be chucked out of the tribe and we'd die soon enough. If we weren't concerned of success versus failure, we wouldn't care if we found food or hunted successfully or not, and we'd end up dying of starvation. And if we weren't concerned about comfort or feeling bad, then we would have ignored cuts on our arms or if we've got enough heat or something like that, or whether we're hungry or not or responding to pain. So there's something adaptive about seeing the importance of things like success or approval or comfort. But the problem is if we get rigid in our beliefs, if we get narrow or rigid in our beliefs, or we think, okay, all power just comes back to yeah, electricity rather than gas, over life we kind of can differentiate things a bit more and find out, oh, that's not the whole picture. And also there's this. Or people might sometimes act like that in this situation, but sometimes they might act like that as well. Or maybe in this situation it helps me to approach people in this manner, but maybe in a different kind of relationship 
I've noticed it actually helps if I go a slightly different way. So some of developing a healthy understanding in life and a more mature, effective understanding in life is allowing ourselves to have a bit of ambiguity in our ideas. Sure, we look at generalisations and making sense of the world and simplifying it, but we're open to having our view of the world questioned or challenged in some way. And we'll go on experience and maybe draw on other people's experience as well, not just to how we see things, but be open to other people's ideas. Part of health in dealing with our beliefs is being somewhat open and flexible in our beliefs, but also over a period of time, we'll go on our own experience, what tends to work. So naturally, we will develop habits and routines that help guide us, but hopefully not get too rigid in them. Well, what I wonder then is, like, what happens when those beliefs get challenged at a really fundamental level? Because, like, as you say, like, it's one thing to say, like, let's try and do this and let's try and be a little bit more open with our, you know, belief system, all this sort of stuff, leave a little bit more room for recalibration. But, like, particularly talking about, like, the midlife crisis seems like a, you know, a grand thing within itself in terms of there's a whole range of things going on about, you know, awareness and mortality. But a part of that, I imagine, would be that your beliefs are challenged in a way. And even the late midlife crisis, it seems to me that part of that is that your beliefs are challenged in a way that is, is confronting and distressing and difficult. So like, what happens usually when people are challenged with those really fundamental beliefs about who they are? Well, one of the main things that you notice is that people feel anxious or threatened in that situation, and it can come up in some quite remarkable ways. For example, many people could relate to a fear of being rejected. But for a number of people, what comes across more is their fear of intimacy. For example, might have seen a number of clients who've been in a range of relationships one after the other, and what you notice is a pattern where after they get, in a sense, rejected, the relationship ends, the person breaks it off, they kind of managing it like they half expected it to happen. But where they show the greatest anxiety is if a relationship is going on for several months, then maybe four, five months, six months longer. And sometimes what you get a sense of is the person's actually more fearful of intimacy than rejection because you see ways that the person might act to keep the other person at a distance. They might start acting more provocatively or it's like starting arguments or challenging the other person in ways that would almost invite them to reject the person and you get the sense that their real fear is in a sense intimacy and unexpected rejection. They're kind of getting in first. They're trying to almost create a scenario where the axe will fall and the other person will more predictably reject them. Or funnily enough, rather than just having a fear of failure, some people can have a fear of success. I saw one fellow many years ago who had any number of jobs that he left at a certain kind of point. But what was striking is sometimes things most went wrong just after he'd been promoted. For example, on the surface, it was like he had a fear of failure. But one day, he actually clicked about this. It's the first time I heard of a fear of success. He said, I think I've got a fear of success. Sound a bit strange to me. I asked him what he meant. He said, look, when I got a promotion in that particular job I had, I forgot exactly what it was, he said, I needed to have 20-20 vision to be a supervisor in that particular job. And just at the time I got a promotion, then I developed this eye defect. It was measured by an optometrist and I actually needed glasses. That meant I couldn't take that job. Then I was in another job 
in a chemical factory. I think it might have been a paint factory. And he said, and the key thing in that factory is that I could be exposed to the paint and the chemicals. He said, I was promoted to a supervisor level and then straight after that I developed this diagnosable allergy to the chemicals that he'd been exposed to for a while. He said, oh, look, I think I've got a fear of success. Made perfect sense. It's almost like he had a fear of unanticipated failure. If he can get in first and cut it off at the pass, that he'd be kind of ready for it. What he couldn't tolerate is getting his hopes up. Oh, I might be successful. I might be a supervisor. That might work. And then have the rug pulled under him as he believed would inevitably happen. So this fundamental belief about being a failure or being unlovable, it can lead to this twisted kind of reaction where people feel anxious if it's almost like the opposite is true. So people can gravitate towards familiarity. People can want their beliefs that I'm no good or it was my fault that I was raped or assaulted even though ostensibly that wasn't the case. But it can lead the person to at least have some kind of belief that they have more control over their life when, in fact, it's harder to deal with the fact that maybe something's happened that are just beyond my influence or control. And sometimes we just have to face that helplessness that actually can be a part of the reality. So these are some examples where sometimes people would choose actions or beliefs that seem completely self-defeating But part of it is the challenge of adjusting to viewing things in a different way. Well, that is so interesting. And I must admit, like when I first asked you that question, I was thinking, you know, you're going to say maybe a marriage breakdown, maybe a a loss of job, maybe some other, I suppose, traumatic life circumstances, which could bring into question that stuff in a way. But that's very interesting. And particularly as you talk about, like, say, a, a physiological allergy to, you know, like a, a physiological barrier to being able to carry that out. I must admit, I'm quite a fan of the guy in many ways, but the one person who, who comes to mind when you mention that is Nick Kyrgios. I think he potentially has a little bit of a, a fear of unanticipated failure as well. But I suppose what that highlights is... A, I suppose the the need to you know at least try like it like it seems to me this could be quite difficult to do on a level but at least try and you know look inward and have some understanding about what those kind of deeper beliefs are because the other thing that that suggests is that the relationship between our deeper beliefs and say like for lack of a better term the micro behaviors <laughs> the the flicking of the light switch for lack of a better term like it's a strange relationship in terms of sometimes the behavior might seem very strange based on what the deeper belief might be so it just seems so fascinating to me that there's clearly such power in the motivation that comes from our deeper beliefs Yes, and as we're talking about this, it sort of illustrates how a psychotherapy process can be more powerful if between the client and the therapist there's a level of conflict. Some things aren't handled necessarily wonderfully well. There might be uncertainty or ambiguity in the situation. Like, this is life. This is real-life relationships can be challenging. But if people can find that there is conflict or messiness or difficulty and there's a question about whether they're accepted or not or approval or different levels of being seen or intimacy it's a kind of crucible if you like at times in which real life experiences can happen whilst each person 
is reflecting on that hopefully with a degree of honesty and authenticity and that can help people recalibrate in some ways. It can help people have what we might call a corrective experience and sometimes therapy involves what we call a kind of limited reparenting to look for the therapist might be an imperfect supporter in some ways but hopefully more than good enough and treat the person as though they are acceptable or deserving of care or potentially competent or they can make up their mind for themselves about some things. A lot of it's looking to help people have these corrective experiences because to change someone's more fundamental view about something in life, it's important to have feelings involved and experiences, actual experiences involved where they can see that things turn out a different way from what their earlier beliefs might have predicted. But that can be a very anxiety-provoking process. And that's why for some people, psychotherapy isn't particularly helpful or they're not ready for it at that particular stage. There does need to be a readiness for people to go into a situation involving considerable discomfort if they're looking to rework some of their deeper views about life and relationships and who they are as people. That strikes me as such an anxiety-provoking process because like, that would just be you know, a fundamental challenge to your identity in some ways and something that maybe without support and guidance and someone to discuss this stuff with, it would be easy to get stuck with just the anxiety of it. And for example, think, oh, no, this is what I'm going through now. It's a purely negative thing because of these purely negative feelings that I seem to be experiencing at the moment. But what I found fascinating, Dad, and and what I'm super interested to chat to you about is this idea of metanoia, which is something that's come up, you know, across centuries, across millenniums even. And it's something that Jung spoke about quite a bit and he referred to as a self-healing process. So I completely agree with what you were saying before about how it would be such a, an anxiety-provoking process. It would be something that internally we could see to be as just a negative thing. But Jung would actually disagree with him, wouldn't he? Like, how would Jung define this idea of metanoia? Yes, as much as that could be very challenging, it can be a very creative kind of process. As Jung would have emphasised, it can lead to growth. Now, I should qualify as well, when I used the example before of when people might be fearful of success, of intimacy, often that's where people have had very negative early life experiences. There might have been trauma, abuse, neglect that more fundamentally changed someone's world. So I might add that for many people in a therapy process... They might generally have quite positive and stable relationships or enjoying a degree of success in their work life and have some confidence about dealing with difficult feelings in different ways. So we're talking about differences of degree, but especially where people are looking to make more fundamental changes in life and their own personality. That's where more it might require this more challenging process where there's a real coming apart to see things in a different way. That might still happen if people are looking to shift what I might otherwise say could be a more minor problem of having felt burnt out for the period of the last few months because of taking on too many demands or something like that. And then just simply some education about different symptoms that show when we're experiencing signs of stress and either reducing demands or bolstering our different coping strategies can help. Sometimes that might be a much lighter kind of process. But if people are looking to 
really change the ways they relate to others at a more intimate level and especially dealing with feelings of trust or dealing with past feelings of abandonment or being overwhelmed by concerns about success or failure so it's really impacted on their career, their relationships, then often people are going to need to have an experience which even in a therapy setting can involve a feeling of coming apart to put things together in another way. But commonly what happens is people come along to therapy. It might be after having felt that they've gone through something of a midlife crisis or feeling that they're just lost in their life in some way or, or find it extraordinarily difficult to deal with a recent loss or adjustment when people are feeling that there's that coming apart anyway. But yes, that often involves a promise of growth. Most people get back to being pretty much their usual self in a number of ways, but often something is added. And the more profound the change that people are going through, the more the coming apart, in some ways, the more profound what can be added. It's not just simply a bit of psychoeducation or learning a few mindfulness techniques or just taking up a bit of exercise or looking to be grateful for good things happening in life. All of these things are meaningful and helpful, even for dealing with depression, anxiety or whatever. But sometimes if we look at more significant personality change, then that will involve a deeper process of change, maybe more of the feeling of coming apart that many might relate to around a time of midlife crisis experiences. And so it seems to me that this idea of like metanoia is a lot to do with like, well, I'll unpack this more in a, in a moment, but it seems to me it's a lot to do with, for example, like the disquiet, the discomfort, even the distress at times that would motivate us into changing something. Like I know Jung himself had a very eloquent way of putting it. He said, metanoia is changing your mind, but not an everyday thing, a fundamental root and branch existential change of mind. Total shifting of purpose or life commitments. Now, it strikes me that Jung's definition of that, like that wouldn't necessarily be something that you could induce within yourself. Like it might be that you find yourself in that situation, almost recognizing the need for change. Yes. So again, we go back to the theme of the dark night of the soul, which again, just even from the terms itself, the dark night of the soul, something so deeply challenging might find it really hard to see how we can deal with some particular challenge in movies or literature. It might come up with a person facing outer or inner demons. It might be fighting off a dragon or going off on some grand adventure, but often it will be more the person dealing with how they relate to other people in some ways as well. So the key thing about the dark night of the soul is how it's connected with the hero's journey. And again, the four different stages of that, something shifts the balance or there's a call to adventure. Then there's the dark night of the soul as some major challenge is being faced. And if it wasn't challenging, then it wouldn't really be that meaningful a story, including in the context of our own lives. But then something shifts the balance. It doesn't stay in the dark night of the soul forever, but part of the challenging experience and the painful feelings and the disruption and the uncertainty is motivating. 
as you mentioned, that motivation aspect. But it also might mean, as in the hero's journey, we might still draw on mentors or supports in some ways because we might be feeling overwhelmed otherwise. But it's about finding the resources within ourselves to deal with that kind of life challenge. Then that helps us find a new direction. Then the next phase, which goes for quite a period of time, is consolidating in that new direction. But yes, the connection between painful feelings and motivation. And one thing about, say, metanoia, similar to notions of midlife crisis, it makes you turn inward to look at what you can find from within, especially resources from within, to deal with the outer challenge, but also we can still draw on outer resources along the way. And it's such an interesting example, that idea of the hero's journey, Dad, because like that's something that's come up for thousands of years across so many cultures and I think speaks to the maybe the prevalence of these kinds of ideas like across cultures across time like it might even be worth getting into some of the the history and development of these ideas and a good place to start I think would be you know maybe not the birthplace of the hero's journey but certainly the oldest hero's journey that I could think of would be the Iliad and the Odyssey and Odysseus from the poet Homer and it's interesting that like metanoia is a Greek word. So meta, I believe, means like change or I think it can mean beyond too, but I think in uh, this context it means change. And noia means mind. So like change your mind, like literally, but like a very fundamental changing of mind. But it's interesting to go back to, for example, ancient Greece, where they had, I believe, the goddess metanoia. And they used the term metanoia, which meant to change someone's mind about someone or something. But they also had this idea of the personified metanoia, like almost like that, I believe it was a, a goddess, a shadowy goddess who was cloaked and sorrowful. But metanoia also accompanied Kairos, who was the god of opportunity, sowing regret and inspiring repentance for the missed moment. So it's really interesting, Dad, that the Greeks almost paired this idea of metanoia, almost this disquiet about, you know, missing the moment, literally paired it with the idea of opportunity. And and I I think it's fascinating, like when you think about it a little bit more, like inherent within opportunity is, you know, you're as likely to take it as to miss it in some ways. So I think it's very interesting that they paired those two things up. It is. It's quite striking. It relates to some of the themes we talked about with a midlife crisis or a late midlife crisis. Don't miss the transformative opportunity of going through a crisis. We'll talk later on about trauma reactions as well and the notion of post-traumatic growth. Part of the notion is if you're going to go through something so challenging that upends your life, it might be worth looking at what might be some of the opportunities within that. Initially, we're going to be just adjusting to the crisis itself and feeling overwhelmed and helpless is naturally part of a process if a situation is beyond us to manage with just at the start or seems at least really overwhelming. Natural to feel really distressed and not be able to see a way forward. However, with any kind of crisis or coming apart or fundamental change to our circumstances, yes, maybe there's an opportunity, even in the most trying circumstances. Well, I think that's such an important point, Dad. And and like it really gets to the heart, I think, of, of what this idea really is. Like it's so interesting. You go back to the Gospels, like the original Gospels, the Christian Gospels, and I believe the term metanoia was used in the Gospels and it was translated to be repentance. 
And in a Christian context, it's seen these days as this notion of repentance and conversion. But the idea of repentance is like it's very different from regret in the sense that there's an element of which it's, you know, it, it, it is looking within ourselves and recognizing that there is a, I suppose, need for change in that sense. Yeah, look, I'm really interested in those terms repentance and conversion because they're so different from terms that we'd use in psychology. And of course, psychology is basically a a secular kind of activity and process. But when you think about it, these terms repentance and conversion, yeah, religious kind of terms, but they do mean profound change of a certain sort. So yeah, it strikes me they also involve, in a way, getting your ego out of things, which is often a key thing about change. Absolutely. And yeah, like, like it is such an interesting idea. And I think that idea of like repentance and almost the Christian context is something that carried on with metanoia right up to the Renaissance period where the idea can be found in art from that time. And I believe the elements of repentance, regret, reflection and transformation are always present in the concept of metanoia to some degree when you're looking at say like art from the renaissance so like it's so interesting dad that these ideas like they do seem to go together in a way and like i even found it as interesting there was a 20th century japanese philosopher tanabe and he even had what he called his theory of metanoetics Uh, And I believe Zanje was the uh, Japanese term. Please forgive my pronunciation there. But again, he described this idea of like metanoia to be a repentance or a change of heart. And so then basically this idea, it was present right up until Carl Jung. And so Carl Jung took the idea and integrated it with his wider psychoanalytic system. As we've said, he saw metanoia as a form of self-healing and growth that comes after a tragedy or a breakdown. He said of metanoia, we breathe new life into things with a fresh energy before a depressive tendency has taken root. And that seems to be maybe referring to the midlife crisis a little bit there too, Dad. But then William James, the popular psychologist as well, he described metanoia as discovering or uncovering of your authentic self. So like, I just find it so interesting, Dad, that no matter where you look for these ideas, like you go back to, you know, ancient Greece or the early Bible or, you know, Renaissance art or obviously, you know, modern psychology. And there seems to be like a connection between these ideas. Like they're all related to almost like an existential recognition of the need for change. Like it's almost like like obviously a midlife crisis would all just about be the biggest existential recognition for a need for change. But like even that, say like the late midlife crisis and, and other things we've spoken about in, in recent weeks, like they all seem to involve this idea of an existential recognition of a need for change. Yeah, so it's got this particular quality coming back to, and again, the word repentance is uh, striking me looking at these different kind of definitions, but certainly the religious terms often had that in it. And I'm just sort of thinking now how that might come across in psychology, because we'd often use a certain term, surrender. Often it seems that people have to surrender to some extent to make change, surrender previous beliefs, ways of doing things. But again, it relates to the idea of getting your ego out of it. And one other expression I'm reminded of by Joseph Campbell is that where you fall, there your treasure lies. In other words, the challenge that someone goes through, they might have had too much 
hubris or pride in a way, and it might have been pride before a fall, but then they learnt that they needed to get a different balance in terms of their arrogance. Or it might be the person was very materialistic, but then found that it just ended up nowhere. And so it's almost like they needed all those assets or whatever to prove to themselves that actually that's not what counted. They had to go inwards in some way. But this notion of surrender, I think, the notion of repentance, the notion of, in a way, bowing your head and recognising that the way that you're doing things before, that wasn't working. It calls for a fundamental shift. And I find it so interesting how often, for example, this sort of thing comes up in like movies. It's really in nearly all movies and books and stories and that sort of thing, Dad, that involve this idea of heroic transformation. Like, you know, we talk about the hero's journey. Like, I find it so interesting in, for example, in, say, like, movies and books and all this sort of stuff. Like, how often you come across, say, like, metaphors for, like, the ashes and the phoenix or, like, birth and death and rebirth, but, you know, they're not like literally talking about death in that situation, in the story or whatever it is, like these kind of motives and these like almost memes and and ideas, like they do come up a lot. And, you know, like as I said, like not necessarily someone who's, you know, particularly religious dad, so wouldn't necessarily have, you know, deeply considered, you know, words like repentance and all this sort of thing before. But like, as you say, like when I think you look into it, there is an element of, yeah, almost sort of resigning yourself to the fact that you don't have it all worked out at that time. Yes, and I've certainly mentioned a story before, but I will mention briefly how I relate to this at such a personal level and the notion of surrender, but also how a fundamental change can be so helpful after a crisis. I've mentioned before how when I was 32 years of age, I was a senior psychologist at the hospital. I'd worked there for 10 years. I had quite a degree of respect from my colleagues, but I went through a severe depression for a period of six months, including being hospitalised for a time. And that might very well have been seen as a breakdown and in many ways at the time itself, especially the first few months, I saw it as an absolute failure. I thought, here I am, I'm meant to be a senior psychologist helping other people with depression and here I am going through the experience more stuck than most of my clients would have been, hospitalised for it in a sense, what a failure, what future could I possibly have? Now, deep down, I was dealing with a core issue of perfectionism and self-judgment around issues of success versus failure. And ironically, having been off work for six months and it being quite public, like all my colleagues pretty much or many of them would have known that I'd been hospitalised with depression, that would have previously been my greatest fear. But after a period of time, just by the reality of the circumstances, in a sense, had to surrender to it in a certain kind of way. There's nothing particularly I could do to actually shift that quickly at the time and just get straight back to work or whatever. I had to go through a process of that kind of coming apart. But the result of it was having gone through a period of six months, not able to function and all the rest of it, in the long run, I was able to get back to work. 30 years ago, despite the stigma, I had all sorts of acceptance from many colleagues, was able to function fine. That taught me more than anything else how to get in more perspective the notion of perfectionism, still being able to strive but not having to be on top of things all the time or in control or being seen to do things extremely well. 
more than good enough or putting in a solid effort was enough. So that to me was a fundamental experience of where I fell, there my treasure lay. For the 30 years since, never had the same level of pressure or demand to achieve. Could still strive. Many things would have looked to achieve afterwards would have gone just as well as if I hadn't gone through that particular depression. And I know that many of my clients have had their own experiences which are similar, not just clients but other people that I've known, where you've looked back on what might have been the worst thing that could have happened to you. It might have been a partner leaving you at a certain stage where you thought that your long-term relationship was assured. And at the time, the person might think, my world is ending. But maybe that change led them to find other aspects about themselves or relate to themselves in a different kind of way and find an even better, more intimate relationship in future. It might be people who feel they depend on others and then it turns out the other person betrays them or lets them down. But in the end, they find the resources in themselves that they actually didn't need that person in the first place or they can manage fine without others and yet still choose to have positive relationships. So this theme will come up in many ways in different people's experiences experience and with trauma we often refer to it by the term post-traumatic growth where there are a number of recognized things that can happen good things after people have gone through this coming apart that might otherwise have been seen as just a, a, a breakdown that would lead the person to be broken well, I think that's such a, a good example, Dad, because one of the things that I, I suppose I've gained a bit of an understanding about over the last couple of weeks, talking about things like this and, and even a midlife crisis, like there's an element, I think quite a, a large element to which these experiences, like they're about in some ways like recalibrating or reorienting us or sort of reconnecting with like an element of ourselves. Like, as you said, like that would have been an incredibly distressing experience to go through. But the fact that it set you up for 30 years afterwards suggests that the tools or the insight or the calibration that came out of that whole experience allowed you to then, for lack of a better term, be more functional in the 30 years subsequent to that. So like I wonder, maybe just to finish up even, I suppose to, to highlight that notion a little bit, I know there's a, a couple of areas of post-traumatic growth which are, are mentioned that I think are worth looking at just to finish this whole discussion up a little bit uh, and tie it all together. What are those areas of post-traumatic growth that we can maybe use to look at an experience like, like a crisis and maybe to help gauge whether or not we have been able to get something out of it? Okay, so there are five key areas recognised in post-traumatic growth, the gains that people can have. One is an appreciation of life. So when people have faced such dire circumstances and it looks like the future can't improve, when things get back to some kind of even keel, that tends to lead people to appreciate life even more. And I certainly experienced that after that time 30 years ago when I didn't think I had any future. So in some ways the years since then have been all the richer and all the more appreciated, if you like, because didn't know that actually that would happen. So appreciating life, relationships with others. Most people over a period of time recognise the extra importance of their relationship with others compared to some of the more superficial or material things. We sometimes say that there aren't too many people who lie on their deathbed thinking, gee, I wish I worked harder to achieve more that way. Generally, people are really focused on their relationships at that time in life. It's something that's so important to them. So how we relate to others. New possibilities in life. 
if people go through a crisis or a loss or even a divorce, in time, people might see different opportunities that might be available to them that might not have occurred. They might not have been there if they'd followed the trail that their former life was on, so to speak. Personal strengths. Because people have to dig deep within oneself to find ways of rising to the occasion or getting through the challenging circumstances, that often leads people to find different aspects in themselves, their capacity for creativity or persistence or the capacity to draw on others' support, their capacity to find ways themselves that work or adapt in different ways, so personal strengths and then spiritual change. This also tends to happen more in the second half of life and following midlife issue type experiences, but generally after a significant trauma, people's minds are focused on what counts the most, or even if there's a sense of time running out in whatever way at different life stages. But certainly after a challenge of that type, crisis, loss, trauma, people tend to think, what means the most to me? Where do I find the most meaning in life? What is my life purpose? What's important to me? So these relate to the spiritual questions. Who am I? What is life on about? What's most important to me as a person and my connection with other people? Well, certainly. And oh, these are all big questions, Dad. And I must admit, uh, having a look at some of this sort of stuff, like I find it so interesting, but I reckon I've, I've maybe just started my journey looking into to some of these ideas because they're, they're complex ideas and there's uh, – there's plenty of people much, much smarter than me who've written very interesting stuff on it, Dad. So I'm very much looking forward to continuing this conversation with you in the years to come. But thanks so much for, for chatting with me about all this today. Uh, it's, it's been interesting. And over the last couple of episodes, looking into all this stuff with the, the midlife crisis and everything related to it, it's, uh, yeah, it's been a fascinating little series that we've done. And we'll put all the resources for today's episode up at psychspills.com.au. But thanks so much for chatting with me about all this today, Dad. I look forward to the next one. And thanks, Rowan. Thanks for bringing up this different angle, a different way of looking at it. So hopefully it leaves people with a different sense of the term breakdown, other ways of thinking about it.